93% of your life is spent indoors, but so many of our favorite moments are outdoors. The fresh air, the feeling of peace. Since warmer weather is almost here, let's make the most of it with Outer, the new outdoor furniture company with purposely designed furniture to get you outdoors more. Outer makes the world's most beautiful, comfortable, innovative, and high-quality outdoor furniture, all from sustainable materials. I love the new outdoor dining table and chairs I just bought. It looks great in my backyard, and it's the perfect setup for hosting a dinner party. Go to liveouter.com slash thefounderhour to see all the incredible products they have to offer. For a limited time, get 10% off and free shipping. That's liveouter.com slash thefounderhour. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, before we get into the episode, just a quick reminder, if you enjoy what you hear, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you get notified when new episodes drop. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, at The Founder Hour. Let's get into it. Welcome to another exciting episode of The Founder Hour, the podcast where we dive deep into the stories and experiences of some of the most inspiring entrepreneurs and visionaries of our time. Today, we're thrilled to bring you a conversation with a true pioneer in the world of specialty coffee, the one and only James Freeman, the brilliant mind behind Blue Bottle Coffee. James's journey from a freelance clarinetist to founding one of the most beloved and influential coffee companies in the world is nothing short of remarkable. In this episode, we'll explore the rich blend of passion, precision, and entrepreneurial spirit that led him to revolutionize the way we think about and savor our daily cup of coffee. Tune in as James shares his insights on building a brand that values quality above all else, the challenges he's faced, the pivotal moments in his career, and the philosophy that has made Blue Bottle Coffee a household name. Whether you're a coffee connoisseur or simply fascinated by the art of entrepreneurship, this is an episode you won't want to miss. So grab your favorite brew, sit back, and join us for a captivating conversation with James Freeman. Well, James, thank you for being here with us, first and foremost. Sure. Um, I know you had to make a long trek from Ohio, so... Well, I'm on the count. I'm making coffee on Wednesday, there so down on Melrose, so... And just full transparency, the New Orleans iced coffee is, to this day, still one of my favorite coffees ever. Um, it's just, you know, both at the store, in the carton, I don't discriminate. Mm, that's in nice. what package it comes in, so... Good work on that one. I think Thank it's a you fan very much. favorite, you know, probably everywhere. Are you are you allowed to have a favorite? Sure. Nobody can favorite? tell me I can't have a favorite. <laughs> uh that depends on the moment. Um I you know, I I the older I get, the more deep I get in coffee, the more I like very, very simple things. Yeah. So um I love an espresso. Mm-hmm. I love um a lightly roasted, elegant, single origin. Uh, made as a pour over yeah you know those are things that really sustain me and then you know then i I have other interests too but those are like really deep or Mm. can be Mm. really really deep things for me yeah so we can you know kind of start from the beginning of you as a person Mm -hmm. uh, meaning your early days and your childhood and then we can Mm. get into blue bottle but uh, you know talk to us a little bit about like what young James was like, where, where you grew <laughs> up, uh, what was, what were you into? You know? Cause I know a lot of kids aren't into coffee. You know, there's a certain age when you get into it. You yeah. They didn't used to be. <laughs> yeah. I was, um, raised in Humboldt County mm-hmm. by, I don't know, absent, neglectful parents. Um, ish. It, it was a very rural, uh, place. Humboldt County is like a red state and a blue state, mm-hmm. Oklahoma by the sea. 
very, very rural. And it wasn't, you know, it didn't feel like a great fit for me. So I, I had this like streak of alienation mm -hmm. that I felt. I eventually used that very, very productively. I was very interested in classical music when I was young. And, you know, to my parents' defense, there, there was a lot of classical music in the house. And so, but I, I like took that and ran with it. And that was my abiding interest was I was a classical clarinetist from age 12 to age 35. Wow. I mean, not professionally until I got into my 20s. So, but that was a, like a real way for me to dive very deep into these profound ideas, this profound repertoire, uh, these geniuses of the Western canon. You, I could experience them as a high schooler in a way that was very satisfying to mm -hmm. me. And just, you know, these universal questions about life and existence and love and truth and beauty, all of those things. It sounds, I don't know if it sounds corny or not. No. But those are the things I were interested. I'm still interested. Life and love and truth and beauty, all those things. Um, and so I explored those interests via classical music and the clarinet. And it was a very weird thing to do in that little town, in that place. And But it, there were options. Like band saved me. Chamber music camp saved me. Like the the... Nearby colleges, Humboldt State University, a four-year college, and College of the Redwoods had musical organizations that mm -hmm. I, as a high schooler, could go. And then, you know, I had more to say with the college kids that were music majors than than my peers who chewed tobacco and listened yeah. to ACDC. James, you used the word saved you, or the word saved you. Uh -huh. What were you needing to be saved by? I was needing to be saved by um, these these bigger things. Still, still needing to be saved by these bigger things. The the prosaic, the mundane. Were it's it was hard for me to live on that level of you know and 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 just existence. Like you got to work, you got to eat, like all that kind of stuff. That's real, but I wanted to learn more. And I was able to start to, to, to really uncover what I thought were these very universal and beautiful truths via literature and, 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 and classical music. They're everywhere, obviously. Nature, poetry, um, smile of a toddler, all of those things. What, what gave you such deep uh, perspective or like... Where did that come from? I mean, as a young kid or, you know, even in high school, you're not really, or most people are not really having those deep conversations with themselves or others. What do you think it was about you that allowed you to think so freely and beyond the the norm of the day-to-day -day mundane life that you describe? I don't know. We, we all turn out so differently, right? And we all respond to our environment so differently. Some people have more resilience, some people have less. Some people survive horrible, horrible childhoods and and are not crushed by them. And Do you think part of it was innate? I, yeah, I mean, that's not for me to answer, but yeah, I think I just came out a certain way mm. and that's part of it. And then through luck and happenstance. Sorry, <laughs> that's sorry. fine. I, I had to be with <laughs> that DoorDash? Is it DoorDash? 
<laughs> oh, you got a sign for that. No, that's all right. I thought they knocked again. They never knocked. This is like the. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was surprised. That's right. That's why you're a genius at editing, right? <laughs> Edit all the Amazon out of this. Yeah. We could even keep it. It's fine. Yeah, just, uh, that would be it. kind of funny. Yeah, we'll yeah. keep it. Yeah. That was got a knock charming. at the door, and it was the UPS guy. So shout out Through to the UPS guy. Beauty, and then. Got, got, your, Amazon. got your blue bottle delivery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Mid podcast. Yeah. Free ad for you there, James. There you go. <laughs> um sorry you were saying no so, that's right yeah. i i don't even remember yeah we were, we were kind of just talking about you know your mindset at such a young age and uh-huh. being so sort of not only introspective but like thinking about these deep things that most kids probably don't think about and wanting to experience more before you've really even experienced life at that point <laughs> yes. you know you're like young, and, and i couldn't relate you know being at a young age it's like you kind of see where it's going, life is mm-hmm. going, and how people, your peers, where they're headed and where they're going. You're like, I don't know if I want that. You right. Know, it's and like you do want not want something that. different, yeah. but exactly. you don't know what that is. Right. And it's yeah. kind of a scary place to be. You know, it's like you don't know where to look and where to turn. Yeah. And it sounds like for you, you turned to music and totally classical music. What inspired you to do that? Like, did were, were there like classical, you know, musicians that you love to listen to specifically and, and wanted to sort of emulate? Yeah, there was repertoire in my house. I remember growing up with like this uh, Berlin Philharmonic box set of, you know, nine Beethoven symphonies and listening to that, Beethoven six. I still remember the first time I put that record on as I must have been 13, 14 year old. Um, you know, so there there was classical music in the house. It, it started like my parents listened to a pretty narrow band. And then Some Kids Rebellion is like rock and roll. My rebellion was Stravinsky and Bartok, for, right? So it was just seeking more of of this repertoire, this this idea, and it was a very uh, I don't know impoverished environment in terms of resources for like I I think like got my my six year olds on a mountain biking class, you know there were no AP classes, yeah. you, there were like. There was football and there was basketball, and though, but that's where the mean kids were, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you know. So I didn't want any part of that. Mm-hmm. There wasn't like a very developed like college prep um, cohort in my high school. There were a handful of us uh, that ended up leaving. Were you someone that um, seeked, you know, external sort of stimulation from things like meaning like you know you so you you were confined to a certain environment you Mm. you know you were presented a certain set of options of what Mm. you could could and couldn't do Mm. were you someone that took it upon yourself to go and seek things outside of that and see what was possible what was available to you out in the world that yeah yeah yeah. i I tried i tried um i think back and it's like well i could have done this a little more or that but like as soon as i learned how to drive let's see i was 17 I figured out like the principal clarinetist of the San Francisco Symphony was able to teach me for a summer. His name was David Breeden. He was a uh, he died um, early. It was quite tragic. Beautiful, beautiful player. And I was I was able to go to visit him as long as I came back on the same day. He lived in Belmont. Mm. I lived in Humboldt County, so it was about six hour drive. Mm. Um, no money for a hotel, but I, my parents did pay him. Um, and as long as I could drive there and back in one day, so it was a 
like close to a 20 hour day, but I, I studied with him and those, those were very meaningful. So I will, I was able to push where I could and, and get some experiences and, and just being among college kids when I was in high school, uh, was very helpful because they came from different places. Mm-hmm. And James, was the goal to become a full-time career musician? Yes, that was the goal. And I did that. I patched together a career for a while. How long? Um, let's see. From about age 23 to 34, okay. 10 years. Because okay. I'm thinking, you know, if I'm your dad, right, I'm your parent... <laughs> Um, and or I'm just thinking ahead. If my kid comes and tells me, you know, I want to be a musician, you know, in Los Angeles where everything uh-huh. costs, you know, a lot of money, um, I'm going to be concerned not because that's what they want to do, but more so because I don't know how they're going to be able to sustain themselves financially to live in an expensive state like California or a city like Los Angeles. Mm. How did your parents, if if they had any sort of um, qualms about it did they did they express that to you oh there was expressing of qualms yes (laughs) and and certainly not to give you parenting advice all good but if you do have a child the way to crush their dreams is to talk about california's property taxes (laughs) so just fyi i assume that that was brought up (laughs) not california (laughs) property taxes explicitly the birds and the bees but but that idea that idea of how you're going to make a living and and you should be a lawyer and and all those things so but this is why i wanted to ask because there's obviously a lot of creatives not only musicians but a Mm -hmm. lot of creatives that or kids that are creative that want to go into creative fields Mm -hmm. and they're faced with that conversation because even with our generation you know our parents would tell us doctor lawyer engineer mm. i'm sure you know we're a lot more open-minded but i'm sure when push shoves or shove and our kids are like hey we want to become a whatever you know creative position insert here we're like well are you are you sure you know that doesn't make as much money as it would if you went to you know business or if you went, be, went to become a software engineer how did you how did you face that conversation what was your defense of what you actually wanted to do I just wanted to do what I wanted to do, and you, you know there were a, there was a lot of conflict. They had been putting money aside. There was some tax thing. They put money aside to that my dad didn't have to pay taxes on to go to college. So by the time I was ready to be a musician and, and study music, I mean they did, didn't let me audition to certain places that I I wish I was was able to audition to. But by the by that time, I was able to take that money because it was the oh I remember. The California Uniform Gift to Minors Act hmm. was how they funded my college. Hmm. And so by the time I turned 18, then that was my money to, to squander yourself. on a creative education. However, you, now is very different. When yeah. I went to UCSC, I was able, like, because my clarinet teacher lived in Carmel, and mm-hmm. I knew I didn't want to study academic music. I was a philosophy undergrad because that subject matter appealed to me quite deeply mm-hmm. um but that was like it was like three thousand dollars a year yeah. and i had a pell grant and i had a, a work study job yeah. and i taught some clarinet lessons and i didn't have to get a loan right yeah. and the math now it made more sense now probably. it's just hard yeah. and now it's crazy like yeah. now like i was like three thousand dollars a unit I mean, we went to USC and they have a great music program, but if yeah. you mu- want to be a music major and you're going to USC, you're 
prepared to shell out like 200k yeah 200 yeah and and that's a very different calculus now this culture is saying like all right well you want to do this creative thing great enrich yourself enrich the world but you're going to be saddled with this loan debt that you will carry with you for decades after and that wasn't part of the conversation because the economic constraints were very different Mm -hmm. and 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 what is it that music school or learning music in college taught you did did you do you think it helped advance your career in music yeah i mean my uh classical music is a very mentor driven field so there was this one man his name is rosario mazzeo and he's this beautiful he's like he had taught or had played in the boston symphony from 1933 to 1966 so he had seen like he knew stravinsky he knew he had met prokofiev like he'd really seen the boston symphony during the kuzovitsky years um, th- that he had direct, direct experience of this beautiful time in music. And he was a very gifted teacher, a gentleman. It, he really taught me a lot about the world, not just about music, although he taught me a lot about music. And then I started to get gigs after studying with him, and I studied with another <laughs> very different man in New York City. His name is Kalman Opperman. That's his last name? Yeah, Kalman Cal- was his first name, and Opperman, O P P E R M A N. Oh, Opperman. I, th- I heard, yeah. heard Opperman. So. Oh, oh, no, not Opperman. No, Cave. <laughs> <Okay>. No. Um, <laughs> that yeah, <would> be perfect. <laughs> and and he he had a very different viewpoint, but very you know beautiful approach to playing some of the most beautiful sounds I ever heard in my life. Was this eighty year old man in this hoarder's den of an apartment in seventeen West Sixty Seventh Street, uh, right off Central Park West. Um, I can still remember those sounds. So, yeah, so it was very deep, and I was frustrated. I, I've said this in different interviews, good enough to get the jobs I didn't want and not good enough to get the jobs I did. So I finally was approaching burnout, and I had this this moment of of being a hobbyist in coffee and being really interested in it, and, and it was a really good time to be really interested in coffee. Yeah, and for context, what time period is this? That was the turn of the century. Okay, because yeah. you know, reason I ask, you know, I have friends who are musicians, classical and not, and the state of the economy matters a lot. About yeah, how, how you feel about where you're at, like you know, some you know when when it's a good period and we're not sort of in a recessionary period, then there seems to be more jobs available. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when they're, you know, for example, COVID was such a polarizing thing for musicians, musicians. because everything's shut down and you have no, you know, gigs coming in. So you have to take other jobs. And so that's, that's a really, like that's a period of time when you're just like really reflecting of like, you know, what do I do? What do I switch careers? Right. After so many thousands of hours of such passionate engagement and so much talent and such deep, deep engagement. Yeah. Yeah. So Turn of the century, um, what was like the final straw that broke the camel's back? Like? <laughs> I, I talked about this. There, There's this piece by um, Gustav Holst called The Planets. It's a very like bombastic, unsubtle piece. It's, it's very like John Williams adjacent. Yeah. And for some reason, I played that two or three times in one season with different orchestras. And I just, I just remember there's four clarinets in the clarinet section. And, you know, the first clarinet has a few solos, second clarinet has a couple of duos, then clarinet four is bass clarinet, so you, that clarinet can be heard. And then I was clarinet three, but like twice in that year. And it's like, would, like, would anybody notice if I didn't even show up? Like, 
what like do i exist <laughs> there are like real questions like am i here am i making a sound can anybody hear me and and i hated the music it was just like everything like, like why why am i doing this if i am doubting my existence in this way why am i here and and that nudged me out of out of music did you feel and i don't know if you've thought about this or not but did you did it take you back to the times when you were in high school maybe when you wanted to do something different and be more do more that caused you to want to make a change at that time like this sort of existential crisis of like am i uh-huh. doing enough for myself in the world like do I right want to? yeah that's interesting was that a feeling at all yeah yeah i mean i wanted more there was always this this longing to be more accomplished to have more access to these profound ideas mm-hmm. that i had intuited were there that i had received from time to time but not enough and you know i struggled with performing at my best during auditions and and so there was a lot of like self disregard for those moments so yeah it was not a happy time for me because i wanted so much more i i knew i could be so much more than i was mm-hmm. yeah so you go from clarinet to coffee you talk about <laughs> the turn of the century uh-huh. uh i assume there was some sort of build up you didn't just launch a coffee shop but were you? Oh, but I could be wrong. There was a build-up. Okay, good. Were you always a fan of coffee? Were you a connoisseur of coffee? What I mean, talk to us about your experience with coffee before launching Blue Bottle. Yeah, I'd had a fascination with it for a long time, um, and you know, Pete's was a thing mm-hmm. when in the Bay Area when I was working in music and and. Just like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, I'll have an espresso or try a cappuccino, you, you know. And and in those days, there was a lot of conversation about this idea of what's what's commonly called second wave coffee. I don't really like mm-hmm. those terms. But um, Pete's and then Starbucks started happening. And there, there was this tradition of San Francisco coffee houses. I remember reading um, Jack Kerouac on the road as a teenager and and you know he ends up at Cafe Trieste, uh, and and that's like you know Cafe Trieste was a very famous place, one of the first places where espresso machine came to the West Coast. So I'd spent some time there. I thought that was like a cool vibe, and then I started getting into it because like as a clarinetist, you that's a deep deep nerdy groove, right? Mm-hmm. That you have to get into, and so that's how I brought my attention to the world, and so. I found I bought this book. I think it was for sale at Pete's about home coffee roasting uh, by Kenneth Davids, I think, and read that. And it's like, wow, I can do it at home. I bought a perforated baking sheet. There was a, a broker of coffee in San Francisco in the South Bay that sold you know many many containers at a time to big coffee roasters. But there was also this like little side business they had selling pounds of unroasted beans to amateur hobby roasters and so i bought a few pounds and like did this very crude thing in my oven it filled my little kitchen apartment with smoke my opera singing wife at the time was (laughs) kind of mad at me um i had to do it when she was out of the apartment and and then it got really deep because i could i was drinking coffee in a french press and 
And, you know, I would try the coffee day one, day two, day three, day four. I was like, oh, like after it's roasted, it makes a difference. And at that time, there was no place in San Francisco that you could get a, a roast date on a bag of coffee. And that seemed compelling. Why, why is this so when something is so, it seemed like a big oversight. Why can't I know when the coffee was roasted? I want to know. <laughs> I want to know all about it. And then that's when it started. It's like as my disenchantment with my musical path increased, my fascination with coffee and also the opportunities behind a, a real like nerdy style with coffee started appealing to me. Mm. And I had no business knowledge. Um, I have more now, <laughs> a little bit. And maybe yeah yeah who knows who cares <laughs> whatever <laughs> no one no one's no one's grading you <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. exactly and and it was like i go to the farmer's market buy my potatoes like buy the stuff and there was prepared food and it's like oh farmer's market. i i know how to do that like you make a thing people buy it and you get give you money like and then you go back you make the thing again and so that's that's where the idea launched in the food world of san francisco at that time which was very much based on this idea of farm to table, this idea of transparency around ingredients and preparation techniques. It seemed like coffee was missed in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to bring that conversation around coffee to the farmer's market. So you were just selling beans, like ground beans or? No, beans? not ground, never ground. Yeah. Never ground. Um, whole beans. And then I got an espresso cart. Mm. And that's like when once the cart hit and people could drink the drinks, and that was another place of like deep, deep nerdiness right. for me. Then, then we were off. And yeah, at the time, not a lot of people know, knew a lot about coffee. So I used to say on the island of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Yeah. And that was me. Just to kind of paint the picture of what was going through your head at the time, you know, being, you said 34, right? Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, oftentimes by 34, people have sort of built a certain lifestyle that makes it really difficult to take the risk of just stopping mm. whatever you're doing at the time and starting a business, right? Because from day one, you have zero revenue, but hopefully you can get to a place of revenue as soon as possible, one but to, yeah. enough to like sustain a, at least at the minimum, the lifestyle you had before sometimes takes a bit of time and it can mm. be a really scary place to be. Right. Um, so in your head, like were you... Did you were you someone that at the time felt I have nothing to lose and yes I, yeah, yeah okay there were no golden handcuffs yeah. right yeah. I was living in kind of a chancy apartment in the mission yeah. and not I didn't have very much money there was some savings and it's like what like what am I going to lose like did it you was, have kids at the time no no, no kids that yeah. came um, blue bottle is one year older than my oldest okay. child yeah. So yeah. you just felt like I needed, now's the time. I need yeah, to take a leap yeah. and figure it out. Yeah, there, there, was, there was no sense. Oh, how am I, like, I'm, am I going to lose my club membership or my lease on my Porsche? You know, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't part of my life. Yeah. I, I guess that's almost better. Yes, because, totally better. Yeah, there's no, like, you know, hindrances, no anything to be like, well, you know, but that could happen. Or, yeah. You know. But, you know, was, was your wife in favor of you launching this business? She was, I think, somewhat supportive and 
Yeah, she's she. We parted about a year or two into the business, so mm-hmm. starting business is very hard on a relationship. Yeah. Relationships are hard. There's that. Um, so yeah, and then but with a new baby, new business, mm-hmm. um, that that relationship did not surprise. Yeah, she was not opposed to it. Mm-hmm. I have to say, in her credit, I'm curious. You talk about the beans selling the beans, starting the cart. Was there an intent to start? A business like was this the well yeah yeah i mean but what what was the idea of what you were doing would be what, what was the extent of the idea at that moment in time like how far ahead were you looking oh not very far yeah, ahead yeah, i was yeah. looking to the next farmer's market sure yeah. Yeah. you know and and i was looking to pay my bills and my bills were very low mm. so i didn't have a very high target or a hard target to to hit so it was just one thing after another. I was really fascinated. I was learning as I went. Uh, classical music was such a strong mentor-driven pursuit that I really rejected any form of advice or mentorship. And, and that really served me very, very well mm-hmm. in terms of coffee at that time because the existing models of coffee I thought were not very interesting. Outside of coffee and music was there anything else you were inspired by you mentioned the farm to table movement um mm. we've had alice waters on the show I, oh I nice being in that you know yeah she's such an inspiration up north there um but yeah it did it, was there other were there other industries that you sort of looked to as inspiration yeah yeah chefs yeah. food yeah. the food industry uh that was definitely i i felt like i was more part of a culinary tradition than a coffee tradition mm-hmm. and as i started in blue bottle that those were the people that connected with Blue Bottle Coffee first were the chefs in San Francisco. I remember Daniel Patterson, early days at Qua. I don't know if you've ever um, ever went there. Yeah, there's some magic, magic times. I've met some friends there. Still dear friends. Paul Einbund was a sommelier at Qua. Now he has one of the great wine bars in San Francisco called the Morris. Um, Dad Vogler had Bar Agricole. He relaunched Bar Agricole. Um, so yeah, being in that food community was great. That that was that I felt like those were my people more more so than in classical music. Um, I was pretty shut down in classical music, very very shut down. So that sort of like more ebullient vibe of the farmers market um, helped open me up a little bit more, helped me be able to connect with people a little bit better. And so when you started realizing that it was growing and people were gravitated towards, towards, and was it called Blue Bottle from the beginning? Yeah, from the beginning. Um, did, was it because of the, just like the taste of it or did they actually resonate like behind, like the story of how, why you started it, how you started it, um, the whole kind of, you know, what wasn't been done before, mm-hmm. was that something that was the reason why it started taking off or was it just because it was damn good coffee from the beginning and that's purely it? No, my hope, but the the only thing I wanted was there to be like this palpable difference in terms of coffee that they've had before versus what I was doing. And at that time, it just wasn't that hard. There, you know, the styles were very, uh, not very diverse. There was sort of, there was Pete, Starbucks, Tully's, and then there were these more traditional cafes that, you know, everything like French roast and like bottles of Taroni syrups and ratty couches and yeah. a bunch of like messy, like for rent signs and uh, on a bulletin board. And, right. and 
And it's like, I didn't like any of that. I didn't want that. We hadn't quite hit the third wave yet. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, your your concept is more clean, simple. Everything's kind of just, you you know, you know what you're getting. Uh, hopefully, yeah. That that was very much my my desire, was to clear out all the clutter and to make a variety of tastes, a small variety mm-hmm. of tastes that had a, a, a real point of view behind them that were based in my convictions and not any form of of inquiry into about into what a customer might want mm-hmm. what was an early challenge you had to deal with call it maybe in the first six to 12 months of the business that surprised you that you you didn't necessarily know how to deal with mm, those first few months so funny so in like indelible it's like a tattoo well, let's start with the New Orleans. The The story behind the New Orleans style iced coffee was I had gotten a place for my espresso cart at the Tuesday Berkeley Farmer's Market, a very charming farmer's market that I had a lot of affection for. And it's spring and it gets warmer and all of a sudden people want iced lattes, right? And I think an iced latte is a compromised drink. I think, you know, when hot espresso hits cold ice it's like it's a little bit sad right and where did the before we keep going on yeah like where did yeah. ice lattes come from i i don't know was that like a starbucks thing i i don't think so i don't i'm not gonna say hell i'm not gonna say hell i'm not gonna say hell <laughs> but got it got it <laughs> So we don't know where they came from. We don't know where they but came from. But they don't from. rhyme with bell or rel or sell <laughs> or tell. Got it. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't want to disrespect anybody who enjoys a nice latte because we've all had it. And yeah. But it's it's like, especially now at this stage in my life, like, I just want something. I just want something that is either going to make me cry because of the profundity and the sincerity of who's crafting it or that I make at home. You know, the commodity nature of coffee is becoming less and less interesting to me. And that's a privilege, you know, because I don't have to sell iced lattes in order to pay my bills right now. And not everybody else has that privilege. And so I I definitely recognize that. But I also also think that that America especially is in this weird place with coffee because in Italy, the gatekeepers, the roasters, the cafe owners, they drink espresso, mm-hmm. and their customers drink espresso mm-hmm. for the most part. And in Japan, the gatekeepers drink black pour-over coffee, and for the most part, the customers drink black pour-over coffee. But in the U.S., the gatekeepers drink short espresso drinks or black coffee, but they're selling big, milky, oftentimes sweetened, quite caloric drinks. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand why. Because it's addicting and you got to keep coming back for it. But if it was, I, it could, that would have caught on elsewhere too, right? One, like, one thinks. You, one you thinks. think maybe, there, maybe there's like it's, a cultural It's way? slowly catching on though. Europe, I feel like, you know, last time we went this past summer, it felt like they were, everything was sweeter. Mm. From the drinks to the food. I mean, because what's happening is all these tourists are going there expecting to get what they get here. Right. right. And so, so they've got to feed that They're beast. also the sort of, 
certain band ingredients too in, in other countries that maybe we don't have we have here right um, high fructose corn yeah, syrup exactly. yeah yeah um but you mentioned back to your new orleans iced coffee oh, store yeah. oh right yeah. sorry we're gonna be here we for a, a while we took we took a big detour on the latte path ice latte path. back to new orleans yeah and so the, i thought that was a problem i could solve yeah. and i looked as i tend to do i looked to the history of coffee rather than say like this is the future I, i'm very much interested in the history of coffee and and um the reason chicory came to the port of New Orleans is because of Napoleonic's Napoleon's desire for economic self-sufficiency, right? So he, since the French didn't have coffee-growing colonies during his time, he was reluctant, or his his economic advisors were were reluctant to spend their hard currency on coffee imports. So they encouraged a taste for chicory, which is the uh, roasted ground root in the dandelion family. It's quite pungent. And so the French brought that taste for chicory adulterated coffee to New Orleans and then the climate and everything that that chicory plus coffee has a nice pungency to it. Mm-hmm. So it could take a little bit of milk and sugar in it and it's quite, it's quite delicious. And so I thought, oh, well, this is an interesting part of coffee's past. Maybe if I made this thing that's built, purpose-built, or cold and ice, some milk, some some sugar. Maybe if I, I made that, and then anytime somebody came and asked for a nice latte, I say, have you tried a little sip of this? Let me set you up with a, a, a little sample of this thing. And I would say eight out of 10 times, they preferred that. Yeah. And there's no no surprise because it was built for that coffee I mean, steeped in cold water. Yeah, yeah. Objectively. Oh, okay. The two out of ten. Yeah. See you later. No, no, I didn't. I didn't <laughs> kick him. I didn't kick him out. I, I made it, but yeah. it, you know, I'm still. I'm trying to be hospitable. Sure. But trying to give somebody, if they order something, something they're even more delighted with, right? Than than what they thought. And so that that was that was my like sneaky little way of making something that I thought was more delicious mm-hmm. than the ice latte. So so I didn't have to make it. The biggest fortunes aren't made on Wall Street. They're made way before startups hit the stock market. Consider Mike Walsh, a name just like any of ours who invested $5,000 into Uber. And that investment money, it grew to a staggering $24,827,400. Such opportunities were once behind closed doors, reserved for those with connections and vast fortunes. But that's no more. Start Engine is tearing down those exclusivity walls and making startup investments accessible to you and me. With Howard Marks, co-founder of the gaming giant Activision at the helm, Start Engine and its 1.7 million users have fueled startups with over $1.1 billion. This is no longer just an investment platform, but an investing revolution. And it gets better. They're inviting you to be a part of their journey. With just $500, you can join their live fundraising round and own shares of this revolutionary company. Click the link in the episode description and jump on board before their investment round wraps up. Earlier, you mentioned something about the commoditization of coffee. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you what you mentioned over time, having learned a little bit about business and sort of mm. certain things about how business works, I guess. Mm. Oftentimes, See me underbelly. oftentimes uh, competition or the thought of competition mm. deters people from starting a business because you're sort of entering an industry where there are so many incumbents. In your case, the mm. Starbucks is the Pete's, you know, the 
the the waves or you know the the waves of like coffee are things that you don't know what's coming yet mm. you know um and i'm curious you know maybe naivete helps in these it's so right helps. it helps yeah. when you you're not thinking that far ahead but what have you learned about competition and entering a market that might have very strong incumbents at the time mm. but there's no saying where things are going and oftentimes we've seen new new entrants you know, innovate and dominate uh, eventually. So I'm just curious. If you yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of people are really looking for a personal expression. Not, I, I think having something that's deeply personal is felt and appreciated. And so that's what people told me. It's like, why are you doing this when it's so saturated? I love that kind of yeah. liquid metaphor. And you know, I just want to do what I want to do. And it was a very good time. In retrospect, it was a very good time to start a cafe now, given rents and labor and all that is very, very hard. I, I don't know what would have <laughs> happened had I started this thing now. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I'll never know. But at that time, it, people were really wanting that new expression of different tastes, different ways of making coffee, Simplicity, purity, no sizes, no flavors. You, you know, all of that was this this absence of the things that they had seen before and thought they wanted was very appealing to a lot of guests. Not everybody, but a lot of guests. Yeah. So what happens? You're, you're at one farmer's market. Do, mm. you, do you keep expanding to other farmer's markets until you have a brick and mortar location, like a physical? Basically, yeah. I, I, I sort of went, there's a, a beautiful collection of farmer's markets in the Bay Area and they all, it's sort of like off-Broadway, and then you get closer, and then, and the big show at those times still was the Saturday Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market. Mm -hmm. And so I did Old Oakland. I, the, I did the ones I could get into. Old Oakland was first, and I will always appreciate that because it gave me my first, my first opportunity. And then Berkeley Tuesday, and then Berkeley Saturday, and then I got into um, Ferry, Ferry Plaza, Saturday, and that was a, like a beautiful community of artisans there, the best farmers, big crowds of people. It was before Instagram and, and Twitter, so if people want to know what was going on in food in the Bay Area, they came to the Saturday market. So a lot of journalists, a lot of food professionals from out of town. Did being in that environment, like sort of the, the tech hub um, of like so many companies mm. started out of San Francisco at that time, did that help? Like I think it did later. Yeah. Um, it did with investors and, yeah. and like that business part when the money started sort of flowing, I think our location definitely helped. And James, was this just you at the time? Basically, yeah. Me and a couple of people that I would hire hourly. Mm -hmm. That w went on until 2000, from 2002 to 2005. And then 2005, we opened this little kiosk in San Francisco in a garage um, on an alleyway in Hayes Valley yeah. on Linden Street. Yep, I've entered that one. Um, it's charming. It is. Were you roasting these beans at home still? No, no. I um, that the I opened a space about the size of your mm -hmm. living room, and the ceiling heights were not quite as generous. <laughs> yeah, and I I had a little five pound roaster made in Sandpoint, Idaho, by Diedrich Manufacturing. That's where I started. Shout out to Diedrich Manufacturing. <laughs> Shout out um, to Diedrich Manufacturing. You mentioned like 
at some point you started to take some investor money. I think I read mm-hmm. that you had raised like over, well over a hundred million so for the for the business. <laughs> Jesus um, is that because just it is just expensive to con- constantly open up new locations, and that you wanted to sort of do it as fast as possible? And and if so, why? Like, why why did you kind of decide? You know, I'm just going to go this route of raising as much money as I can. To, That's a question yeah. I th- I think about quite often. That was yeah. 2012. Okay. So it's been, what, 10 years now into the business? Yeah, 2012 to 2017. Mm. And if you look back, like the cost of money during those times, the enthusiasm of investors was maybe at a time, like, will that time ever come again? They were just throwing it at you. You get a check and you get a check. and you. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. that guy from WeWork, Adam. Adam Um, A very, very, I spent 90 terrifying minutes with him one time. (laughs) And you know, like he says a few words to Masahiro Son, and and yeah. he's like, he gets a check for five billion dollars. Yeah, you know, it's crazy. Who's dumber, <laughs> him <laughs> as, as Adam Neiman or SoftBank? You don't even know at that point. It's yeah. If you have to ask that question, and they're both dumb. Probably a judge. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. SoftBank's uh, track record there, but scammer around. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. In your experience, you, do you in in retrospect, like you, you feel like it was. It helped, uh, yeah. To be yeah. to be there. I mean, I had been very lucky in being able to build the cafes that I saw in my head, yeah. and those were the cafes that I wanted to go to. I wasn't concerned about what people told me that coffee consumers wanted. I wasn't concerned about what seemed practical. I wasn't concerned about what seemed efficient. I was concerned with making a place that would profoundly affect me and that profundity. I mean, it's, it's a lowercase p profundity that would affect people that came into contact with this place. I want a magic in, in the small scale, um, not cancer curing magic, not a COVID vaccination magic, but magic nevertheless. I was used to tremendously high stakes as a musician you know, like you miss one note and you lose the audition, mm-hmm. you, you know, like, or just like such, so much dysmorphia, such self image, like you make a mistake in a, a performance that nobody hears and you're tormenting, I'm tormenting myself for weeks afterwards. Right. And so coffee was different. It's like I could do something beautiful or it's like, er, I don't like the, the looks of that espresso. I'm going to pull that f- for you again. And like people are delighted. Mm right low stakes mm-hmm. and 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 so i was lucky i made these really interesting places uh, that were quirky and personal and people flocked to them what inspired the aesthetic behind it <sighs> it's because it's very again like i said uh, white walls for the most part i think simple benjamin moore dove wing 960 that yeah, was my yeah. favorite white for light, a long time light wood you mm. know throughout is that a pantone color no it's a benjamin moore paint, paint. chip color oh god okay. yeah you know it's very it's very minimal right you know you just uh. what were you inspired by at the time well people use that word minimalism and i always kind of push back yeah. against that because what i wanted was at the time, you know, I haven't built cafes for Blue Bottle with the exception of this little place on Melrose for six years. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I was was really focused on what I call the primary experience. The primary experience at that time was a really 
delicious coffee made by a very hospitable coffee professional. That's it. Easy. And so Nora Jones CDs and breath mints by the POS <laughs> distract from that <laughs> right, primary experience. Right. You know, a bunch of different sizes and different right. drinks. It, like that distracts from the primary All experience. All the pastries, yeah. Yeah, I mean, pastries are great. I love yeah, pastries. Yeah. My um, wife, Caitlin, was the first pastry chef for Blue Bottle. She made beautiful things that went very, very well with coffee. And I had a certain amount of pride that we made our own right. pastries. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the ethic of the farmer's market. You make what you sell, right? And, and so that's what I think is a little sad um, departure from the, the specialty coffee in the United States. Very few people make what they sell. Like the pastry case is sort right, of right, right. slightly more sad here, slightly <laughs> less sad here, but it's always made by somebody right. somewhere else or, or quite often. Um, but yeah, I didn't want to distract from this thing I called the primary experience and, and sort of a lot of things on the wall or a lot of distracts, like even like tile, like I didn't want patterns <laughs> for a long time. I didn't even wear any patterns, um, except on a tie, hmm. um, I, I busted loose on a few plaid ties. Um, yeah, so, so it was very much ab about focus. What do I want people to notice? And I want them to notice those two things or that one thing, those two principles. And everything else was chatter. Mm. And I got it out of the way. Mm. So for a long time, it was deeply satisfying to have not so much minimal, but pure. Did you want people to hang out at the cafes or you wanted them to just order and I, leave? I wanted a great five minutes, <laughs> a yeah, great yeah, 10 yeah. minutes. I, yeah. I wanted them, I was hoping to make a place that was appealing enough to order for here, mm -hmm. but I didn't like outlets or the the concept of Wi-Fi and computers right. and something like that uh, was was very troubling <laughs> to me, and uh, so I didn't want that. Mm. And yeah. I just want ten yeah. beautiful minutes. I didn't want three, right? You know, and people were receptive to it. Obviously, uh, not everybody. You should have read our early Yelp reviews, um, but many people were. Many people were. What was your favorite review? Uh, no, I remember once, not a particular, I remember right after the kiosk opened, um, I, I saw Yelp and I, I was so naive. It, like somebody wrote about a cup that was 16 ounces and, and it's like, wait a minute, that's factually incorrect. Our biggest cup is 12 ounces. And then I remember Jeremy himself, the, the founder of Yelp, hmm. like calls me. Is that Toppleman? Stoppleman. 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 Yeah, that's right. He calls me up. He's like trying to sell me on like whatever Ads. some some business <laughs> membership or something, and and I was like, all right, well, let's talk because there's some factual things that that these reviews have gotten wrong, and he's like, oh, we can't fix that. Free you know, speech. those are reviewers. Like, and I was so naive. I was like, what? You, you know, like how can that be? But they're wrong. Yeah. They're, they're wrong. You're letting something incorrect remain on the internet. How is that possible, Jeremy? <laughs> so I hope he, you don't have a Twitter now. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I, or I do. It's long, long disused. I still, you know, post pictures of yeah. pretty things on Instagram. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so he didn't get a customer that day, and I didn't get the, the, the incorrect fixed. facts fixed. So we are at a detente, I think. Lesson, what's the lesson learned there? The lesson learned is 
for me, it's it's just like rise above, right? You you know, like you can you can be where I grew up. People used to say sometimes, um, if you wrestle a pig, you both get dirty, but the pig enjoys it. Mm-hmm. So you know, like just don't go there. Don't like yeah. you're lying. It's twelve ounces. Yeah, what does that do for you? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Nothing. Uh, yeah. So I, I think it was um, was it a few years ago when um, the company was acquired? Well, not fully acquired, but it was like a majority stake by Nestle. Yeah, that, it's fully acquired now. Fully acquired yeah, now. It was October of 2017. They bought the majority stake. 17. Okay. Yeah. And 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 you were still CEO at the time. No, I was. Um, by that time, I had recently gone from CEO to what was the term of art? Chief Product Officer. Okay. I was called that. You had hired a CEO. Uh, hi, ish. He, uh, his name was Brian Meehan. He came in as lead investor in 2012. And he was really, he put together the first like roster of glamorous internet celebrities to do the first round of funding. And he was very astute in um, getting these funding rounds and, and selling people on this dream of Blue Bottle Coffee and its um, potential. Uh, he, was, he was very, very good at that. And so he, he was, I had, you know, I look back, it's like, how much did I really have to do with all the fundraising? You know, I did my work yeah. with the coffee and the shops and caring very deeply about this product. That was what my contribution was. But Brian and the people that came in around 2012 were really instrumental in causing investors to think about Blue Bottle in a different way than they had prior to that the, in terms the techification. of techification <laughs> basically yeah 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 and, very and gifted in that and do you, like what was like the sort of the reason why like did nestle approach you guys they, or, yeah. they approached brian brian ran in in some very rarefied circles and he was at some dinner and somebody like the cfo of nestle was at the dinner and he made him an affogato i think and then and then mark schneider the new ish at the time ceo of nestle came to tour a blue bottle shop and it, and it became um, sort of clear to Nestle that they didn't really have a retail presence. They had Nespresso mm-hmm. stores, but they didn't really have a traditional cafe retail presence in North America. And so that's where Nestle was able to see the value well, in blue and bottle. Also, I, th- I thought I remember this, but um, you guys had also launched, I don't remember if it was 2012, it might've been, Mm. Um, your products in store, right? Your like oh the carton, CPG. the carton. Ones, oh yeah, right. Yeah, the CPG. We worked hard. I worked very yeah. hard so, on okay, the carton. So, and yeah. so that's what I was going to ask you about. Is so as the chief product officer, you know, what was or whatever CEO, whatever the acronym is at this point. Yeah. Um, what was your role? What was your focus? What did innovation look like at at uh, Blue Bottle? Was it the CPG? Yeah, it was all of it. You know, I had like crazy, crazy ideas and some of them worked and the carton was totally my idea. I was Mm -hmm. in a plane. I remember when um, uh, Virgin America was so, well, you guys are pretty young. No, no, yeah. Yeah, yeah. when it was really fun and um, it it just felt like you weren't in some dowdy place. Yeah, I remember even the seatbelt video. (laughs) It was genius. Like you could write a dissertation. On the seatbelt video. They got like, acquired by Alaska, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, but that they, was when uh, Sir Richard was still at the helm, Exactly, right? yeah. yeah. 
and it was fun. And I remember you could like order from your seat and I was like really needed coffee. And I, all they had was like a canned iced cappuccino mm-hmm. from Ely. Ely, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was a horrible, horrible. And that was another like good timing. Like at the time, you know, there was a small range of, of CPG coffee products and the range was basically from terrible to horrible. Mm-hmm. That was, that was what you got. And so I was like, well, why is that? Is there, you know, is there a a systemic reason? And, you know, there are a lot of difficulties. We we figured out how to do it with very pure milk, um, not overcooking the coffee, finding like a really hard to find source organic chicory in in scale. We did. Because it was originally just the New Orleans iced coffee, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was it. Organic sugar, clover organic milk. It was done at the clover dairy Mm -hmm. um, through there their cold chain mm-hmm. um and it was fun because when it came out it's like this is so good this so is good. the best one and then i learned that cpg is brutal yeah i'm getting things in and i thought woohoo you know job right. done we have the best one like yep. everything's going to be great and then then it's not and then it's like oh well, whole foods wants 45 percent, and then like all these people want 180 day shelf like all of this stuff it was once again naivete yeah. that um allowed me to come up with a drink with my team that was so delicious but at that point you're so far far along where i'm sure you had people around you that were more business yeah minded, yeah, yeah. Like there had, were, maybe mbas or things yeah like that. and and just in terms of the How running the store and out that noise and like, everything you know there 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 were people that were very gifted like very yeah. transparent no funny business in in terms of the the um paying bills or anything like right. just it was very a very scrupulous mm-hmm. crew. But how did you navigate like being a creative and having all these wild wild ideas at that level sometimes might be hard to get across the table. It was hard. That how was, did you navigate yeah, those? That started yeah. to get very hard. And yeah. I think back and I was kind of a dick a lot. I acted out, I shut down. Um I, with your people? Yeah, with with I mean I have my coffee people the people that I connected with, the yeah. people that I did not feel alienated by, um, that were just like liberal arts majors yeah. that got super into coffee. Mm-hmm. And and we would cup coffee and, and we cared about coffee. And the fact that we were on this rocket ship was not the most important thing. It was fun. It was exciting. But it was not the most important thing. It wasn't why we were there. And then there was a, a, you know, this infusion of people that needed to be there um, because it was a growing business and it was a moment and, and it felt good to kind of capitalize on that moment mm-hmm. uh, to see what happens. And, and, but there were a lot of tensions mm-hmm. that I look back and I could have been a lot more grown up about how I, I dealt with those people in my life at that time. Um, but I'm here, and yeah. it happened, and you know, James, so were you we at, at that moment or at that time now in 2012, 2017, like that region? Were you at all surprised as to how big Blue Bottle had gotten at that time? That yeah. it was be, like that was beyond even one store. Oh Jesus! Yeah, somebody told me we had like a thousand employees, <laughs> and and it's like. Oh, what like what has just happened 
Do you feel that though as your responsibility then? Totally. Yeah. I felt yeah. a weight. Like it's almost better to not know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you figure, you know, yeah, like yeah. 25. Like stops. something's going yeah. on. I have seven assistants and 16 on the C suite. Yeah. Like, why are there so many people? No, I, I had an assistant for a while. <laughs> I'm still in touch with her. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was, how do I even describe what it was like? Because like I had no expectation. It right. felt like delightful and terrifying and profound, just like from minute to minute, boring sometimes. I think about how many, like during that time, there are all these like, well, we should have a meeting about this or a meeting about that. And it's like, oh, there were a lot of meetings that I didn't need to be at. Um, Was that part of the reason why you decided to like shift your focus from being like the CEO to more of on a product thing or yeah i mean i was i was always only caring about product the right. experience that people had when they walked in the store i didn't see what was more important than that but as ceo like you still have to be very and i don't know if you were as oh. you know like fa- like investor facing and you know board meetings and eventually yeah, yeah things I like d- that. i did the board meetings yeah. and i one of the the people on our board tony conrad is still a a, a good friend of mine um coffee brother really and yeah i did the board meetings met with some investors not all of them um like went to baltimore to go to fidelity um all that the road shows yeah i mean i I played my part what i learned later i remember being at this upper floor suite of offices in midtown manhattan and there's some investor that we were courting and looking at the packet that the cfo put together he was very good at those things mm-hmm. and seeing like okay who's the team and it's like okay here's here's the you know executive chair whatever from harvard business school here's the guy from stanford business school and here's the quirky founder who's creative and then here's the person you know, who's done, who's worked at McKinsey and here's the one that's worked at Boston Consulting Group. And what these investors needed to see is like, oh, these people are just like me. Mm. You know, and that's why the tendency for women founders to not get funded is so deep in that culture, the tendency for, for people of color to not get funded, people from alternative backgrounds to not get funded is because like, that's what they needed to see. Like, oh, I went to Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. you know, or oh, I worked at Boston Consulting Group. They're they're worth writing a check for. Mm-hmm. And so I played my role. Mm-hmm. I was a quirky, creative, visionary founder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I played that role pretty well. And and then I I stopped. I s- kind of stopped realizing that it was a role. I think. Did you ever feel like you did when you were in the orchestra and that your voice was no longer heard? <laughs> yeah, that's so good. You're so good. Yes, that's exactly how I felt towards the end. I'm just pissed about it. Yeah. Pissed about Mad at the world that had given me so many gifts. How do you be mad at the world mm-hmm. to have been on this rocket ship ride, to have like not have to worry mm-hmm. about paying your bills? Like I, I think about like, why was I so pissed off? Right. I had so much. Yeah. Um, I think I had read something about how you had been inspired by 
Japanese culture or something mm, related to totally. Japanese culture. Yeah. What What's the story there? Like, oh, what, what and, Okay. Yeah. I I know we're going a little bit back no, here, but I'm just kind of right. curious. Yeah. You know, in terms of like external influences and how understanding different cultures can help when it comes to identifying opportunities in business and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I had gone to Japan as a musician in, when I was 19 years old and was I was like the first time I left the country and it made a huge, huge impression on me. And it's, <laughs> this is how nerdy it was. Also the first time I got drunk. Um, <laughs> <Sorry>. and, <laughs> and and then i came back i had there there's a i i say i was resistant to mentors but i i can call him a, my japanese coffee mentor a gentleman his name is jay igami and he started he worked for ucc coffee a big coffee company and basically his job in the u.s was to sell canned japanese coffee to asian grocery stores but he's deep in coffee and he came to my little roaster and started, you know, talking to me and give me like UCC swag. And but he learned, you know, those those swan neck kettles mm-hmm. yep. that everybody makes mm-hmm. pour overs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He literally, you know, at the time I was making individual coffees with steaming pitchers, hot water and steaming pitchers, mm-hmm. very crude. And he, you know, he said, "Well, in Japan we have these kettles, um, and you know, <laughs> aren't they pretty? You know, and I saw it's like, oh, that's beautiful. I want to try that." So he literally imported the first pouring kettles from Hario to us in 2000. It must have been 2005. Uh, not a lot of people know about Jay and how influential he is in, in this, this type of coffee. So I just got more and more interested. He was saying, well, in Japan, you know, we weigh the coffee and we weigh the water. And one milliliter equals one gram. Isn't that convenient? And, and then we can express what we're doing as a ratio. You know, a wider ratio is is fifteen to one, and you know, tighter brewing ratio is ten to one. It's like, Jay, that sounds so hard. And then it's like, oh, I'm going to try that. And you know, now that's just how coffee works in a cafe. And we started doing that, and must have been two thousand six, seven, eight, uh, measuring things more. And so I was fascinated by Japanese coffee, and and I had open Mint Plaza the shop on Mint Plaza in San Francisco in 2008, January 23rd, 2008. It was in the New York Times food section. And I had I had gotten like all the coolest stuff from Jay, these siphon, like big gigantic siphons and slow drippers. People, it blew people's minds. They'd never seen it before. It was in the New York Times. And, and then a few months later, I went to Japan for the first time since I was 19. And Jay took me around to all these traditional really dowdy places called kisaten i I mean dowdy externally they're very deep deep places these are for me houses yeah yeah only they serve coffee pour over coffee and i remember you very rarely do we get the privilege of knowing that our life has changed the moment that is changing i remember in october of 2008 sitting at the bar cafe hato after going to several kisaten with jay and seeing the master pour um you know, this, I call it like the pearl necklace, like little connected drops of water. I'm so mm. masterfully, such beautiful technique, such effortless, effortless, um, quiet virtuosity. And, you know, I had been in the New York Times, like I had lines out the door to my two cafes. I thought it was pretty good. And I thought I was like getting close to the top of the mountain. And then I go to that place and it's like, oh, this is base camp, right? 
I've got a lot to learn. And, and so that moment really caused me to, to dig much deeper into Japanese coffee culture. And then that was behind the, the crazy success of Blue Bottle opening in Tokyo in January 2015. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating because I feel like coffee especially, it's like most people probably think of Italy or like Europe. Mm-hmm. They don't think like Japan. Yeah, that's you know, there's there's I feel like there's so much in so many areas like places of the world that you can draw inspiration yeah. from. Oh my god. Yeah, so many beautiful traditions of coffee in so many different places. For Japan, you know, the 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 idea of the shokunin, the expert, the master, or otaku, the the nerd. You know, I, I tell people I love going and I tell people no matter what you're into, whether it's like blue jeans or pizza or coffee or mozzarella cheese, there's somebody in Tokyo doing it better than anybody else in the world. Right. Well, that's because they have the, the whole apprenticeship model, no? Yeah, the structure is different too because you just, you know, Tokyo, people can can afford an apartment and without a big income and they know that their rent's not going to double in, in mm-hmm. 10 years because they've built a lot of housing. And and so and then the, the cost of opening a business, one of the best bars I've, I've been to in my life is this six-seat bar in in tokyo and this guy makes a uh gimlet that is transcendent and he's got two kids and you know if he gets sick he can go like he doesn't have to worry about health insurance he doesn't have to worry about his kids education he can make a living and do pure pure work on that scale of six seats and and if you try to open a cocktail bar in la like i like the alcohol permit alone is like one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So if like, you could get it, oh, if you can get it, so it's like, all right, well, now I have to have twenty four seats, and and now you, you two know, bathrooms, yeah, and ADA, like Parking the ADA spots. bathrooms yeah. that we have in the Bradbury Building in Los Angeles. You know, I've been into ramen bars that are are smaller than those. So that there are structural constraints about doing business in the United States that prohibit that kind of deep, deep work just mm. because it makes it impossible economically or um, in terms of regulations. Mm. So ultimately, Blue Bottle gets acquired by Nestle. Yes. Was that like the happiest day of your life? Nah, no. <laughs> no, it was a relief. I had not been getting on well with the team <clears throat> at, I worked with at Blue Bottle, and I, I just really wanted to be done. It was... A precarious time for me because like 95% of my net worth was wrapped up in Blue Bottle, which was not liquid. And were you at this point still a majority owner or no? No, no, no. I had ceased been being majority owner in 2012. Mm. And that's a very big emotional step that I should have yep. introspected a little more about. It, mm-hmm. it all worked out. I'm here. You know, my kids are healthy and, and it, it all worked out. Yeah. You know, I'm not wishing it to be any other way. But yeah, that's a big emotional mm. step to go from majority to minority. Mm. Why'd you make that decision? Uh, for this, I thought security. I thought like this idea of security. I also knew that I was on this rocket ship and I, I had convinced myself that I had to explore the maximum. What is possible? The maximum possible in terms of business, mm. in terms of growth. What's going to get felt, me to the highest places? Exactly. I thought that was my duty somehow. And I realized I, I could have realized, like, I have a choice in this. Yeah. I, can, I can stay at four or five shops if I want to. Um, but if I did that, I don't think we would have opened in Tokyo. Um, 
which was really the peak of my Blue Bottle career in many ways. And the team that opened in Tokyo, so many, so dear to me still. Um, such a profound experience to be embraced like that by by this culture that I admired so much. Yeah. Um, that was a moment that was worth a lot of, of internal torment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. Um, so what is what does your day to day look like now? And where do you see your sort of involvement going, you know, long, mm. long term? I'm doing this delightful thing called Blue Bottle Studio. It's a pop-up in LA. It sold out in like two hours. There was a nice article in the LA Times about it. And it's this, I'm a, my role right now at Blue Bottle Coffee is I am a line item in a marketing budget. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> I, I, and it's a privilege. Yeah. I get Consultant. To, yeah. yeah, not even. Yeah, I know I'm still on payroll. It's, it's nice. <laughs> And I work with dear, dear people that I feel inspired by. Um, Benjamin Brewers, the head of, I, I don't even know his job title. The job titles now are so opaque to me. Let's call him the head of QC. Yep. And Selena Vergara, the single best retail manager in Blue Bottle, um, is hired the team and is running the floor. And we've got these 10 course tastings that we do five days a week until November 5th. And it takes about an hour and a quarter. And Ben and I worked out like the details of which coffee and the service and the type and the stereo is great. And we picked out records and we play records. Yeah. And I, ju- I just checked his LinkedIn. It says director of QC. So you got it right. Excellent. And and if I had a coffee, com- coffee company, I would want my director of QC to have a last name Brewer. So Brewer. Yeah. It works out. <laughs> yeah. No, he's inspiring. He's the single most inspiring person in coffee. I've, so I've what kind of food pairs up with coffee? Oh, well, there, we have two, um, the pastry chefs, uh, Kiyoshi, I forget his last name, um, who's brilliant. So we, we have like this one set of a tea made from coffee leaves, from coffee cherry, from coffee, um, from leaves, cherry flowers. So we're drinking sort of everything but the roasted coffee seed. I like to think like, if I could figure out how to make the dirt the coffee grows in good to drink in the sky. So like Starbucks? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Zing! <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we... Like, Sometimes I just... It, it, yes. it just comes out. No, no, no. Yeah, I was yeah. I was getting a little poetic there. Yeah. Um, reel me back in. And so we have this one um, course that's a, a, a yuzu pate de fui on a candy shiso leaf. You say users sold me already. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> and that kind of removes the um, the taste of the courses that come before. And then we have this very thick um, coffee that's extracted very slowly. And then we make a, a black cup and then a cafe au lait. And there's a golden sesame financier. Are you is, like is there caffeinated? Such, is there such thing as omakase for coffee? That, that's what they call that's it. That's basically that's what it is. That's what the yeah. LA Times called. Oh, okay. It. Yeah. I was about to say this sounds like a omakase experience. Yeah, although the, some commenters on the LA Times food section Instagram took issue with that I'm word. Sure. I am if sure. you can believe that. I am sure. There are some like commenters. There are some people that had some problems with it. I forget exactly what the problems well, were. Well, the problem with the LA Times is the LA part of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. They, everything is just under like critique. Yeah. God forbid you like walk. <laughs> Why didn't you crawl? Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, we were talking about like fut- like stuff also like future, long term. Like what uh-huh. do you, whether I mean inside the company and outside, like what do you, what are your sort of plans? Yeah, as the, far ahead as the you? studio idea is mobile, so the counter moves, the stereo can move. So my hope is it can be packed up, and I can do this thing with these people I care so deeply yeah. about in another town. I would like to do that. Um, and then I have an idea for a cafe. I finally have an idea for a cafe that hasn't existed yet. I had like a trough of a few years of not feeling very inspired. So I have an idea for a cafe and I'd like to build that. And um, I'm just trying. from Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it doesn't preclude me continuing to work with Blue Bottle. Right. Because it's not a very practical idea. Would you do it in Ohio or some or somewhere else? Mm, right now, the <laughs> right now the place I think it can only be is in the mountains of Japan. Mm. So not practical. <laughs> but I I'm trying. I think you know I'm I'm trying to sprinkle some seeds. Yeah. With that, that's going to be exciting to see. But uh, yeah, this has been such a fantastic conversation. You know, just. You know, hearing about where you started and where it's come is 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 an incredible. You know, um, and all the stuff along the way, and and yeah, we appreciate you coming by and sharing it with us. It's yeah, you guys great. have surprised. I thought we were going to talk about like cost of goods or uh, or ROI and stuff <laughs> like that. You're like very sweet and you got very deep, so I appreciate that. Thank you. We do not care about ROI. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we started this podcast. Yes, clearly. <laughs>